The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to turning. Uh, to, welcome back to the second hour of turning hard times into good times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank uh, each of you for listening, uh, making this show the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to thank our sponsors. The second hour of this show, our sponsors are Eurostar Gold Corp and Liberty Silver Corp. Well, I have with me Jeff Deist, uh, who is a tax attorney and who uh, has been on this show many times. He also serves as the chief uh, of staff uh, for uh, your host's uh, favorite congressman, I think probably the favorite congressman of many of the listeners out here, Ron Paul. Uh, uh, and also uh, we have Michael McKay, who's a friend of Jeff's, and Jeff introduced me recently to Michael. Michael was on this show uh, a couple of weeks back, and uh, really good to have uh, both of uh, them with me. Uh, Michael McKay is an experienced trader and a real libertarian, free market advocate, as is Jeff. Uh, so I asked them to come on today to talk a little bit about uh, some of the views that John Perkins has or maybe some other views that they might have with respect to the markets and what's going on in the political arena and the uh, environment uh, that we find ourselves in these days. Welcome. Welcome, Michael, and welcome, Jeff, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Jay. Good to have both of you uh, with me. Uh, you, I think you might have heard part of what John Perkins had to say. Uh, I don't know how familiar you gentlemen are with uh, uh, with John, uh, but uh, Michael, we'll start with you. What are what are your thoughts? Uh, his his view is that uh, you know the large corporate interests are dominating government policies around the world and uh, our military industrial complex, and that we go in and shape uh, the environments. Uh, we go in and exploit. Many of the uh, foreign countries, etc. What uh, what comments might you have with respect to that notion? Well, the the truth is is that there is a uh, the power that corporations derive to do any damage comes from their affiliation with government. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, if you look at the dog, what is the part that's the most difficult and most dangerous? It's the part that has the teeth, mm-hmm. and the government is the teeth part. Well, it's, uh, the government has the teeth power part, the uh, the guns, I guess, as it were. Uh, and Perkins is really talking about uh, how we use our, our various methods of the United States government to go into other countries and uh, interfere and intrude into their into their lives. Uh, Jeff, anything to add? Well, it's interesting that uh, you know, obviously, your your previous guest has a very fascinating bio and has has really been on the front lines of seeing how sort of uh, corporatism and government go hand in hand. But uh, the, the flip side is that what we're starting to see today is that the left, of course, prides itself on being anti-corporation. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, they make exceptions for that when we see a company like Google that wants to flex its muscle and, and, and uh, lobby governments like Singapore mm-hmm. and Poland, which has recently been in the news, for what Google views as sort of uh, unfriendly gay policies. In mm-hmm. those countries, so it, it's a okay for for uh, big corporations to try to influence government when it comes to uh, favored, you know, fuzzy, warm feeling leftist uh, mm-hmm. uh, campaigns like uh, promoting gay marriage uh, in other countries. But it's it's not okay when it comes to campaign finance and everything. But what Michael said hits the nail on the head. The, this boogeyman that we've made of corporations is a is an absolute straw man. The the problem is government, as always. 
uh, and, and co- corporations are, are tremendously beneficial to, to they're hugely beneficial to mankind. It's just when they get in bed with government and begin rent-seeking and gaining special favors that are enforced at the end of a gun through laws, that corporations become evil. I have uh, uh, another point I'd like to make on this, uh, Jay. Sure. I have the same question for Luddites as I have for socialists and communists. <laughs> are, you, are you voluntary or coercive? Yes. I mean, if you want to go live in the forest, if you want to go live in a commune, if you want to, you know, give away all your goods, and you want to live, you know, uh, unwashed in, next to a stream in the middle of the winter, and 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 so on, and you want to be voluntary about it, or if you want to live peacefully with a group of other people that want to just live in a more primitive fashion, that's completely fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when they add this element of coercion, and where does coercion come from? It always comes from government. Government is that entity that can actually make things happen. They have the point of the spear. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly John Perkins talks a lot about the indigenous people of uh, Ecuador and places like that, and he seems to be uh, standing up for them in a way uh, and against the big oil companies going in there and the, and the corporate interests that those oil or those those interests those oil companies are able to uh, to manage to to buy off. Uh, and he, I, I guess, he would agree with you pretty much on that. But at the same time, uh, there there is obviously a natural conflict between. The world's demands for for energy and uh, and some of these issues of environmental. I mean, I run into it all the time with the mining companies that I follow, sure. companies that are going into uh, you know into places where they're not heavily populated, but places where uh, and and you know mining companies as well as oil oil and gas companies do and can cause some environmental damage. So I guess the issue is uh, you know certainly what you say is is uh, I'm in agreement with Michael on voluntary or not because. Uh, if you you know was brought up as a as a Mennonite and uh, and they were some really good people that I grew up with people that really I think really did love and care for each other in a family and in a community setting and their idea was to share with other people uh, but it was something that came from their hearts outward you know it wasn't something that was forced on them by government and it's sort of a, a, a voluntary communism if you will but it's it's strictly a, a, a totally opposite of what we are given all the time and certainly the property that is being uh, taken from us at the point of a gun by uh, by our government with taxes that's that's for sure i'd like to approach it from a slightly different angle if uh, you don't mind you know when he uh, uh started focusing on uh consumption as mm-hmm. uh, uh as a uh, basically uh in a pejorative kind of sense of mm-hmm. the amount of pre- uh, consumption i think that's looking at the wrong end of the telescope mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself why do we have this affluence and why do they not and there's an excellent book I would rec- I would recommend to your listeners. It's called Beyond Democracy, and the author there's two authors. One is Frank Karsten, K-A-R-S-T-E-N, Beyond Democracy, and it's an excellent book on its own li- on its own right. But he points out a very very important point, and that is that our economic system was really built on the classical liberal tradition 200 years ago of private property, rule of law, and sound money. Mm -hmm. And to a great extent, we are benefiting from that momentum still. Yes. Whereas you look at Arab Spring, you look at around the world where these various different IMF projects that are going on to uh, build roads and airports, and, and they think that's going to bring prosperity. Roads and airports do support trade. But not if the people that are uh, receiving these things do not understand private property rights first. Mm-hmm. Private property is the essential ingredient. Rule of law is an essential ingredient. Sound money is an essential ingredient. And they all stem from the same classical liberal understanding. So you can't build quote-unquote democracy on uh, a tribalism kind of thing because it is basically then going to uh, evolve always from one dictator to the next. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be built on the concept of classical liberal tradition values, private property, rule of law, sound money. 
Well, it's certainly um, private property, the property rights, uh, as Alana Mercer talked about on this show and her uh, when we uh, talked to her about her book, Into the Cannibal's Pot, in which she reviewed what's going on in South Africa. Uh, she ties it also to safety and to, uh, you know, she sees property rights uh, as being a guarantee of safety as well. If you allow government to take away your property, where where does it end, right? It ends. It can end up with, uh, you know, the very your very life, I suppose. And she points out that in South Africa, uh, in the post-apartheid era, not that the apartheid era was a good thing, but that in the post-apartheid era, the crime is just skyrocketing and just everything is getting out of control pretty much there, according to her. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, anything to add? Well, there's no question about it that uh, uh, government and crime go hand in hand. Yeah. It's uh, it, it certainly yeah, and uh, of course most people don't see that, nor do they see this this what Michael what you were just talking about the link between property and prosperity and the the right to own your property, and so uh, we are because people don't understand that we are always um, vulnerable to higher taxes and confiscation in one way or another, either directly through taxes or through uh, the printing press. Um, Speaking of uh, of great books, and this is a booklet I should mention to our listeners: "Secrets About Money That Put You uh, at Risk" by uh, by Michael McKay. Uh, Michael, where can people get this book? It's it's a, an excellent book you've written. And Ron Paul has said, "Secrets About Money" by Michael McKay is a great summary that needs to be read by as many members of Congress as possible. Well, thank you, Jay. I appreciate the plug. It's available on Amazon, and uh, people can pick it up there. Uh, and uh, uh, we're we're very happy uh, that uh, people are are continuing to buy and read that book. I wrote the book so that people could learn some of the very very basics about money that were never taught in uh, grade school and yet are foundational uh, to our understanding about money and how it works. Uh, you know, very very important things. You know, in terms of uh, legal tender, uh, fractional reserve banking, inflation. Uh, these uh, very very basic uh, things, and uh, what caused me to to uh, write the book is we were homeschooling our daughter when um, who's now in college, but when she was in the sixth grade, I was giving her an introductory class on uh, economics uh, and law, and uh, the local school board sends over a a uh, inspector at the end of the year to uh, uh, just interview Marina to see whether or not she had. Uh, uh, learned anything and what did she learn? And she very articulately said when when asked, "Well, the two most important things that I learned was about rule of law and about fiat money." Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and the uh, investigator said, "Well, what is fiat money?" <laughs> and this was, of course, the representative from the school. And I thought to myself, okay, well, this is this is the degree of the illiteracy that we see in, in society. So, my little uh, booklet is really just to give people those basics, and uh, I'm very happy that uh, people receive that. And I I would very much like every member of Congress to read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a sad commentary when you think that uh, such a basic book should be read by the people that are making the laws of our country, but it's. Uh, um... It, it is the way it is, I guess, and uh, I certainly Ron Paul has been uh, doing all he can to try to educate his his colleagues uh, with respect to that issue, what is money and the rule of law and all that. But, Jeff, how far do you think? Has Ron gotten any place with his colleagues? I, have, have some of the people started to catch on? Well, he has, and, and I don't want to undercut Michael McKay's enormous Amazon profits. But I will say this, anybody who wants to stop by Ron Paul's office in D.C. can get a free copy from me of Michael's book uh, while supplies last. Um, But beyond that, I think he's made enormous um, inroads with with the grassroots people in America. And by virtue of that, his colleagues here in Congress start to feel the heat. Um, You can literally talk to virtually any member of Congress. All 435 of them, whether they're from Samoa or you know American Samoa or Alaska or Kansas or Manhattan, it doesn't really matter. Each and every one of them will have a Ron Paul story in the form of a constituent coming up to them with a Ron Paul book, urging them to vote more like Ron Paul, asking them a question about Ron Paul, etc. So um, you know they can 
do what they like here on the Hill and, and did their round for so long, but they, they can't stop the Ron Paul revolution, um, which is really, uh, you know, something much bigger than Ron Paul. It's, it's more about ideas and liberty. So, yes, I, I think his impact has been enormous. There's still a lot of adults in Washington who want to sort of dismiss Ron or poop on him, especially now that he's retiring. But uh, I really think that, uh, you know, if you were to poll people under 25, Ron's popularity would be enormous. And mm -hmm. in my view, those people are a lot more important than members of Congress. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of members of Congress, Jeff, you know, with Ron leaving now, uh, are there any, is there anybody else in Congress that might be able to pick up the torch uh, and, and run with it, um, people that are currently elected and might stay in, in office uh, after this election. Can you think of some? I mean, I think of Absolutely. Congressman Jones is certainly one, I would guess. There are some fantastic members of Congress. And it's important to remember that when Ron Paul first came to D.C., he wasn't yet Ron Paul, as we know him. Uh -huh. In his first go-around in the late 1970s, he will freely admit that he cast some votes that he would now disagree with. Um, mm -hmm. and that he had to find his way and sort of find his philosophy and his voice. So, so we, we can't expect, you know, people who come to Congress, uh, you know, on sort of a Ron Paul platform to necessarily be perfect. Um, Congress, certainly Congressman Justin Amash from Michigan is an exceptional young man, only about 30 or 32, um, and he, he's just been absolutely great and, and very influenced by Ron. And there's a, a lot of folks uh, coming up in this in this current or up, upcoming election in November who are running as Ron Paul Republicans. Uh, certainly, Congressman Walter Jones from North Carolina is a very close friend of Ron's and and uh, was courageously anti-war even uh, in the the Bush Tom Delay years when he had when Mr. Jones had Camp Lejeune in his district. Hmm. Um, and and there, there's certainly plenty of other friends. That Ron has in Congress, but his philosophy has always been he'll work with anybody who's who's libertarian on any one particular issue. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting because he would work with Dennis Kucinich, uh, for example, on some of the foreign policy matters, and uh, uh, there was an alliance there, or has been for some time. Uh, Jeff, it's interesting that um, you mentioned this. I mean, just I don't know if you would care to comment on this, but uh, what sort of things might Ron Paul have voted for the first uh, time? Uh, you know, when he first entered Congress and then left, uh, and now, what what sort of bills might have he been inclined to vote for then? Because well, he was known then as a pretty free market, gold, you know, hard money oriented guy all along. Sure, but what originally prompted him to run for Congress was really his concern about Nixon shutting the gold window, and then as a young physician, having read a lot of Austrian economics texts. Uh, so he was really more focused in his first uh, tenure in Congress on economics issues and perhaps didn't quite as clearly see uh, that what uh, what Barney Frank refers to as military Keynesianism. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, you know, government doesn't create jobs except somehow when it comes to militarism. So yeah. I think probably his foreign policy views had not been as clearly delineated at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he, he uh, came up to speed pretty quick and, and actually showed some tremendous courage. You know, he uh, actually got a call, a personal call, from President Ronald Reagan at the time, um, asking him to vote for one of the one of the early B, I think one one of the early bomber programs, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Ron took the call and just said, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I just can't do it. So, um, you know, the the point is not to uh, you know I don't want to belabor the point, but you know nobody's perfect, and we certainly yeah. don't expect uh, people coming to Congress to be clones of Ron Paul. They're all their own people, but. You know, we're trending towards liberty, and that's what we try to do, and, and uh, that's what the Ron Paul Revolution is all about. And that's certainly not just in Congress. I mean, people need are trending towards liberty in their personal lives and their business lives um, and going about the promotion of liberty in a myriad ways. And, and uh, you know, political action may be the sort of the least effective of all. Well, that's interesting, Jeff, because you, uh, you know, what you just said about Ron being willing and being flexible because a lot of people don't see him that way. And certainly, uh, his son is not exactly the spitting image, either physically or, uh, or, or the way he votes, I suppose, uh, with his father. And it was, uh, interesting. I know I had an interesting, uh, brief conversation with both of them, and I mentioned to his son, your legacy will be whether you can be as pure as your father. 
And uh, I don't know, uh, and I mentioned that to Ron, and Ron said, well, I bet he didn't appreciate that. But uh, in any event, uh, I, I think you're right, and we, we have to be careful not to be too too judgmental. Well, Jeff, you mentioned the, the importance of Nixon closing the gold window uh, to Ron uh, back in those days, and, and certainly I was thinking as we, uh, you know, as I talked to John Perkins that, one of the major problems, I mean, one thing that I don't think John is as focused on as I would li- would really wish he would be, and start to understand the importance of money uh, in the enabling of all of these things that he's you know railing against. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe Michael, you'd, you'd comment on that, but I mean, it seems to me that when Nixon took us off the gold, you know, closed the international gold window in 1971, he paved the way for an awful lot of the bad stuff that's happening now, and certainly made it possible for the American empire uh, to strike out and basically um, go wherever it wanted to. Financially, it has the wherewithal it has had up until now. Well, I think uh, the uh, the term that was used, the uh, military Keynesianism, is, is exactly correct. I think we have, uh, we have a, uh, a Keynesian uh, philosophy and ideology that has uh, been presented to us, but it was mixed with this uh, Chicago School monetarism mm-hmm. uh, that embraced uh, flexible uh, uh, exchange rates. Mm-hmm. Flexible exchange rates is really the big problem that we have uh, in the uh, uh, international community uh, because, you know, it can't be infinitely flexible. There has to be some reference point. And so, uh, de facto, the U.S. government happened to be the... Uh, 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 reserve currency at that particular time because of Bretton Woods. And as a result of that, we have carried ourselves forward with that momentum. On the other hand, it's, we're losing that momentum. The, uh, the amount of our, uh, that, uh, governments that are using, um, the U.S. government, uh, money as its reserve currency is shrinking. I, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, China in particular, is very aggressively setting up agreements to uh, uh, bilateral agreements uh, with Japan and Brazil and other countries so that it can use the yuan without inter- inter- intermediary uh, exchange with U.S. dollars. And so uh, it is happening around the world that the era of this, this kind of um, exchange, uh, floating exchange rates is, is really coming to an end. Um, I misplaced your original question, though. Um, I'm not sure if I if I phrased it very well, but uh, I, I guess it was, uh, you know, to what extent do you believe that was uh, was an enabler? That is, when we went off the when Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. I mean, it certainly made it possible. As I recall, the reason he took us off was, you know, he, neither he nor President Johnson before him wanted to tell the American people they were going to have to pay for. Vietnam or for the Great Society. Well, the reason they took us off the uh, gold, uh, Nixon closed the gold window is because De Gaulle was demanding gold. Right. And uh, and uh, we we over the previous ten years saw our stores of gold drop precipitously uh, down to uh, 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 into the eight eight thousand range of tons mm-hmm. from the twelve thousand range of tons, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, so we had to actually, uh, he had to do something. But I, my personal view of that particular era of history is that it was such a massive period of confusion that uh, no one knew exactly what to do, and so there was wage and price controls that were uh, uh, imposed immediately by Nixon, which of course creates story, uh, shortages and so on. And that plays to the uh, to the notion of greater control, and that equals military application of force. Yeah, and so uh, it all just flows from there. Um, I overheard you say something in the uh, earliest part of the uh, uh, show, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a little bit of a disagreement with you because we agree on just about everything. But I I do think that uh, we are experiencing right now a, a period of time that very very likely is going to mimic the uh, the 70s in terms of the rather profound amount of uh, inflation, price inflation, mm-hmm. that we had during the 70s over the next uh, few years. Uh-huh. And by the way, that's my optimistic assessment. Okay, now, well, my, my, I my, don't, my, my pessimistic assessment is that it's going to be much worse than that. On the, uh, with, with inflation running hyper? Yes. Okay. Well, I, yes. 
Okay, we'll summarize it that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, I, I certainly hold open that, that possibility, and I don't know, actually, it was a, a commodity trader. You're a commodity trader, or at least you have been in the past. Uh, Jim Wiles is a gentleman I've met, uh, met up with who tends to be on the deflation side, as, as I am. And he's, uh, he's in agreement that if we see the dollar break through, there's these sort of key levels uh, on the index, then he will change his views very, very dramatically. And I think I would have to, too. I mean, if the dollar starts to crash, would we not start to see something uh, very horrible in terms of uh, prices? Right. Well, I think what's going to happen is that, first of all, uh, being a student of Austrian economics, we have to establish that the definition, the proper definition of, in- of inflation. inflation is actually the creation of money, which right. has already happened. We've had massive inflation of money. However, uh, there's a secondary way in which that can happen, and that is, of course, uh, by credit uh, creation, right. and that hasn't followed through. But there is yet a third way in which it can be created, and that is uh, by velocity. Mm-hmm. And that is when people just want to get rid of dollars because it's musical chairs and they don't want to be the last man standing with a fistful of them. And that is a potential specter out there that I think is quite prominent. Well, there's no doubt about that. In fact, I uh, would. I think we're probably not in so much disagreement. If uh, those the second and third of those ways come true, then I think I'm a hyperinflationist as well. My issue is that much like the 1930s, uh, there's so much debt out there, it's difficult for the banks to lend it. I also think that if Mr. Bernanke really gave us helicopter money and put the money in the hands of the masses, uh, you would start to have some velocity probably picking up right away. I don't know your thoughts on that. Well, I think that's probably true. I I, I look for uh, problems with, uh, uh, you know, money that uh, basically has expiration dates, uh, you know, things of that nature. Um, it bothers me when I see uh, little things like that. I got a rebate from Verizon for a, a new cell phone recently that uh, I had to use within a week. <laughs> now that was very interesting, but you notice, you know, you notice on the actual bills that they started printing in Zimbabwe that, you know, the money had to be used by a certain period of time or it had uh, or expired. This kind of um, this takes, you know, the Keynesian playbook to a high gear, where not only are they planning inflation, but they're planning uh, an incentive for you to consume and not to save, mm-hmm. and so. You know, then it's very clear that the money that you're actually holding is not a store of value, that it is only a medium of exchange, and that you better get rid of it. And then you're going to exchange it for something, hopefully, that is a store of value. Yeah, well, that's uh, certainly something that we're in agreement with, uh, is uh, uh, trading in the, the fiat money for for the real thing. Uh, Jeff, ideas, where do you come down on this inflation-deflation issue? Well, it's fascinating, Jay, because on the one hand, you have... Businesses and individuals, certainly in the Western world and in the U.S. in particular, that are shedding debt, they're paying off bills, they're reducing their balance sheets. So you have deflationary pressures on the private sector side. But on government side, you know, you see the Fed's balance sheet exponentially expanding over the last couple of years with QE1, QE2, etc. So on the one hand, you've got individual and companies shedding debt whereas the Fed is adding debt to, to its balance sheets. The ECB is adding debt to its balance sheets. So it's really a, a strange time, and I'm not sure that there's any real easy parallels in history um, mm-hmm. no. for us to compare this. We've never had a, a, such a, a widespread economic turndown, in the, at the, whereas at the same time we had such you know, huge central banks pumping mm-hmm. out money. Yeah. Um, and so, actually, you know, there's never been a time in history when there's never been a, an actually great go-to money like gold. Yeah. You know, because right now uh, everybody's you know guessing uh, where should they be. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think the three of us know where you should be uh, in gold, and I I see that my engineer is telling me that I should be going to commercial right now. Can both of you come back for a few minutes on the other side, if for ten minutes sure. or so? Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, okay, folks, we'll be right back uh, with Jeff Dice and Michael McKay. We're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have back with me for another few minutes here, uh, Michael McKay and Jeff Dice. Uh, Michael, when we went to break, I think we, we started talking about gold and uh, what people can do, how they best should own it. Now, I know when you were on the show the last time, we talked a little bit about the sort of forces, economic forces, mm-hmm. geopolitical forces that might be in play that seem to be taking us back towards uh, some sort of attachment of gold to to money. Can you talk about that, elaborate a, a little bit on that topic? Well, I, when we talked last time, I, I focused on uh, how uh, Basel III, the Bank of Inter- International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, is uh, issuing this uh, Basel III Accord, and in it they've called for gold to be a Tier 1 asset. Uh, that means the equivalent of, of, of cash and, and treasuries, and that our Federal Reserve and the FDIC and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency just issued a uh, a report to all of the uh, banks in the United States that they are at the same time going to recategorize gold as what they call a zero risk asset, and that this is important because it makes gold a form of money for banks and for commodity brokerages because for banks it is actually an asset for capital purposes and for commodity brokerages it is the equivalent to trash, uh, cash and treasuries for uh, margin purposes mm-hmm. but it isn't yet a uh, money for uh, people in terms of the medium of exchange however i think when we were talking earlier we talked about a store of value i think people have to start thinking very seriously about gold in that way and Jeff can speak more on the tax side of the equation, um, but I was uh, noting an article this morning that a friend sent me about some recent um, um, moves in Spain 
where a, a growing number of people in Spain are moving, uh, small investors are actually moving into gold and silver bullion because it, uh, in particular, receives favorable tax treatment. Um, it's exempt from their value-added tax. Mm. And in Spain, there are no special taxes or levies specific to the resale of gold bullion. And for a very parallel reason, I've been recommending to people to, to very closely look into precious metal IRAs. Mm-hmm. And um, I personally use uh, Sterling Trust Company uh, in Waco, Texas. People can Google them. Um, they have a very light fee schedule. They are connected with uh, Delaware Depository, where the monies are actually, or the gold and silver is actually held. And I believe that's an excellent, particularly for a Roth IRA, uh, a, an excellent way to hold gold and silver. And uh, people do not know, most people do not know, that if they're retired uh, or at age 59 and a half, some or even all of their 401K may be able to be rolled over. Uh, if they have an annuity, uh, it often is relatively inexpensive to break the annuity. Uh, sometimes it happens that annuities even have a surrender-free provision, and um, but uh, those should be investigated by people with their uh, financial planners. Who, by the way, if uh, they do have a financial planner, the first question they should ask them is if they are an adherent to Austrian economics. If not, they should start searching for one who is. Well, I guess uh, that is probably the best advice of the whole show uh, because. Uh, uh, it's clear to me that those people, people who understood and who saw and uh, could see what was coming long before, uh, before the the problems that we've had the last number of years, and I started certainly writing my newsletter years and years ago, and when you know from 2000 on, and uh, not that uh, not that uh, was the most wonderful advice given on the planet, but we certainly were in the right categories and the right uh, you know in gold and gold mining shares, and have done far better than the S&P 500 since the year 2000, which is, I think, probably the peak in the equity markets. Well, what it's interesting in looking at this, um, the Basel III uh, Accord that you're talking about, and, you know, the banks, I, I, I guess, up to this point in time, could only look at gold as a Tier 2. Uh, three. Three, actually. They, they but, took a 50% haircut on it, and so yeah. it was very disincentivizing for yeah, banks. Yeah, it, it was a Tier 3, uh, and so... And so with a 50% haircut, what they were doing, the banks were going out and selling their gold and turning and buying treasuries where they would get 100%. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 exactly. And as my friend uh, Martin Siblo, who is a, uh, a banker in uh, Canada, uh, pointed out, and I think I mentioned him in the last show, uh, and I think brilliantly so, when banks actually start holding the combination of cash, gold, and treasuries, and let's assume that at some point U.S. Treasuries start becoming a very unattractive option. Then they're going to have a very strong incentive to move toward the gold. And if that happens, there could be a very parabolic move in a positive direction for gold. Yeah, and that's why people need to be aware now. And, of course, the, uh, the modus operandi of the establishment is to keep everybody pacified and, and believing that Uncle Ben... Bernanke can uh, can still pull this thing out, and, and everybody's going to be happier if they'll just stay in their uh, in their paper money. Um, what what uh, maybe Jeff or uh, either of you could comment on? What are the probabilities, in your view, of a confiscation of gold again, as Roosevelt did to Americans in the 1930s? Jeff, I'll hand you... that to you, Jeff. Well, I suppose it's pretty tough to go out and confiscate it physically from existing physical holders just like it's tough to go confiscate guns from physical holders. But it's not very hard to, to monitor or prevent online transactions. Mm-hmm. And it's not very hard to prevent physical searches of people entering and exiting the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, gold is, is, you know, sniffs out government BS. Mm-hmm. And so gold is the great truth teller. And ultimately, you know, you can fool markets for a long time. You can fool people with fiat currency for a long time. But at some point, you know, if if gold really spikes, then the government's going to try to crack down on that in some way simply because that's freedom breaking out. Mm-hmm. And that's what governments do is they prevent freedom. So, uh, you know, there's no question that, that it'll be on the minds of of government it's just whether or not, as a practical matter, they'll be able to do it. And um, 
you know, there's there's all kinds of ways now, whether it's offshore servers, um, you know, you name it, that pe- people are going to try to get around whatever kind of uh, um, currency c- controls they try to place on us. Right. Well, it's a, it's a tricky it's a tricky time. I mean, I think most people want to obey the laws. They don't want to be outside of the laws. But when the laws become oppressive, and uh, you know, then and and when people's very lives start to depend on, uh, you know, and are threatened by government, then then people become desperate, and uh, people do desperate things. But certainly, what you're saying, Jeff, was understood by our founding fathers. I just wished, uh, you know, there's one, at least one member of Congress still who understands it, but I don't know how many more uh, people in uh, in the Senate and in the House who seem to really, really grasp this, or maybe they just don't care. Maybe they're, maybe they're doing so well in life as it is, uh, uh, you know, uh, hanging in there with the with the rich and the famous that they don't care. I don't know, but it's. Uh, I guess the best advice though is to really uh, seek a financial advisor uh, who is an Austrian school proponent who understands the damage that's being caused by. Printing money and, and debasing the currency, uh, and and take it from there. Thank you very much, Michael and Jeff, for coming on with me uh, today to talk about these issues. Uh, and we we'll hope to have both of you back sometime in the near future. Great Folks, pleasure. Uh, uh, great. We'll talk to you soon, both of you. Thank you very much. Uh, we do have to go to a commercial break, and uh, when we come back, I'll have some closing thoughts about today's show and my guest next week. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I uh, really did enjoy the discussion we've had with uh, with John Perkins today. I always do enjoy talking to John. He has uh, views that maybe aren't completely in agreement with mine. In fact, I'm I'm quite sure that they're not. Uh, but uh, I do think that he uh, he does have an understanding of what's going on geopolitically uh, that is very important to understand and uh, also um, to help us, uh, you know, realize. What is going on in terms of our own uh, managing our own lives and our own investments? And it certainly was good to have Michael McKay and Jeff Deist uh, with me as well to uh, give their perspective on some of the things John had to say and on the direction that uh, our world is heading these days and in the direction that our markets are heading as well. Certainly, as we look at today's markets, uh, we we have seen uh, a bounce back. Uh, in the gold price, uh, well, we're seeing a gold price that is hanging in there pretty well, actually. Um, I'm just looking here. Uh, silver uh, price as well is holding in there pretty well. Um, I, we're seeing a breakout, certainly in the mining uh, shares. We're seeing a much better picture now for the juniors that we cover uh, as sponsors and also those that I cover in my newsletter. Uh, I believe that we've turned the corner, although that having been said, 
I, I do also worry about an implosion uh, in the financial markets now. Just talking to Michael McKay, he's obviously not of that mindset, but I just look at this huge amount of debt that is out there and believe that another Lehman Brothers-like event uh, could happen almost any time. Um, it will be different, of course, but there uh, it's just, uh, I think, an accident waiting to ha- happen, and I'm not quite as convinced as Michael is that, uh, that the policymakers can... Uh, inflate the uh, the economy, uh, inflate the debt away, or uh, that they even want to, in fact. Uh, and I guess that's uh, there's room for differences of opinion. Among the Austrian school thinkers, there are people that are on both sides of the inflation-deflation uh, question. I did want to talk uh, an, uh, more about um, the very interesting uh, ideas that come out of um, uh, The Family of Secrets, the book by Russ Baker. We talked to Russ Baker last week. Uh, certainly some very interesting things that uh, Russ had to say. And I started reading uh, in Chapter 10 of the book this uh, just yesterday uh, a little bit about um, Nixon uh, and the takedown of Nixon uh, that, uh, according to the work of, uh, of Russ Baker here, was really a CIA plot to get Nixon out of the picture. And Baker certainly uh, is more from the left side of the political spectrum, was not anybody who would love or revere Richard Nixon, uh, but a very interesting quote. Uh, apparently, uh, Nixon was very interested in uh, the Kennedy assassination, and for good reason. I mean, a former president of the United States. So after Nixon became president, he was very curious about that. And uh, I just thought I'd read a paragraph or two here, a short one from um, uh, Chapter 10 of Russ Baker's book, Family of Secrets. He says, uh, Richard Nixon was a curious fellow within... Days of taking office in 1969, Nixon had begun conducting an investigation of his own regarding the turbulent and little understood days leading up to the end of the Kennedy administration. He had ordered Ehrlichman, the White House counsel, to instruct CIA instructor Helms to hand over the relevant files, which surely amounted to thousands and thousands of documents. Six months later, Ehrlichman confided to Haldeman that the agency had failed to produce any of the files. And uh, so uh, Haldeman responded as such. There's a quote from in, in the book uh, that Haldeman responded to Ehrlichman when he said that the CIA refused to hand over the files. Quote, those bastards in Langley are holding back something. A frustrated Ehrlichman told Haldeman, they just dig their heels in and say the president can't have it, period. Imagine that. The commander-in-chief wants to see a document, and the spooks say he can't have it. From the way they're protecting it, it must be sheer, uh, pure dynamite, end of quote. So I think that's really interesting, and it talks also, uh, the book talks uh, in Chapter 10 about uh, Nixon was never really that warm with respect to the oil companies, and he was never really terribly interested in uh, in handing over all kinds of tax breaks to the oil companies. And uh, there's an awful lot that goes on, I think, that doesn't meet the eye, clearly. Uh, the Bay of Pigs was an issue uh, when Nixon was still in the Eisenhower uh, in the Eisenhower White House as vice president. He had some things to do with the CIA's involvement in the Bay of Pigs. So it's really, uh, this is a fascinating book. I think it's one that I'm going to be, reading and spending time digging into Russ Baker, Family of Secrets, the Bush dynasty, the powerful forces that put it in the White House, uh, and what their influence means for America. I think this is a topic certainly that intersects with the things John Perkins is talking about. It intersects with much of what Ed Griffin talks about in The Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, all of these uh, these things, uh, these activities of government, the huge bureaucracies, in the United States government that really control and run our government, uh, that have attachments to the rich and the powerful, and of course, most and I think most important of all is the Federal Reserve and the ability of the Fed to uh, to basically finance all of this stuff, and then of course the banks uh, and the large corporate interests that get rich uh, from from the game as it continues to go on. The big question is how long can this game go on, and that's of course. The establishment wants to keep each of us believing that they can keep the balls in the air forever, that they can keep uh, the dollar uh, alive and well, that the existing financial system is uh, is sustainable. Uh, you know, certainly John Perkins believes that all of the 
uh, European countries uh, should should opt out of the euro, should go their own way, protect their own sovereignty. Uh, certainly um, is, uh, is is something that John believes, and something that I personally believe as well. But that's not what the ruling elite want. They want to gain more control. They want to have reduce the sovereignty of individual nations. They want to induce reduce our individual liberty. They want to control us essentially and uh, and tax us and have us uh, and move back to the feudal system, uh, as our guest last week was talking about as well. The the move is back in that direction, no doubt about that. I, I'm afraid. Well, I certainly do. On the good side, the good news though is that the markets uh, for gold uh, do seem to be responding uh, to the extent that uh, we can protect our own uh, wealth that we're blessed with. Uh, we want to try to do that, and we want to preserve our wealth so that we can help uh, our family members and those that are close around us uh, as well. Well, next week, uh, Peter Grandich is going to be with us, and I expect that Peter will have some things to say about uh, how he is advising his clients to invest their money. Peter has had a remarkable record of, uh, of success in terms of investing, and, um, and Peter always has a lot of uh, very interesting things to say, so I'm sure you're going to want to see Peter. I would like to just mention before we close here, and we're just about out of time, uh, that uh, the real price of gold continues its rise. This, to me, is one of the most important aspects, something that I watch every day, because if gold is rising relative to energy and base metals and uh, food items and clothing items, then it means that uh, all other things being equal, probably gold mining profits are going to remain strong, and they have been remaining strong. Gold mining shares uh, have lagged, but now I'm looking at some of these uh, some of these indexes, for example, the XAU, has just broken out against uh, uh, broken through a downtrend line that dates back uh, for more than a year, uh, and it has broken uh, considerably and decisively above its 200-day moving average. The same thing holds true for the HUI uh, as well, and uh, it is uh, substantially above its 200-moving-day average and above its downtrend. And the index that I watch most close, closely because it is most uh, closely related to the kind of companies that we cover in uh, my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, is the TSX Gold Index. And that looks like a double bottom is in, and that also has risen above uh, a one-year downtrend line. And so the gold shares are definitely picking up. I believe they are very undervalued relative to gold still. Uh, but, of course, time will tell. That's my belief. The markets uh, actually uh, tell the truth with respect to that. So... Um, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll keep watching. I do think there are some excellent, really strong, excellent uh, gold mining companies out there. Some silver mining companies as well. Uh, but I think most of all, the advice that was given earlier: uh, look for Austrian economic advisors. Uh, I think also you want to stay out of debt and keep some cash and keep your balance sheet clean. That's the best advice I think anybody can give. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. I look forward to uh, talking with you next week. I want to thank Tacy Trump my executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.